This episode is brought to you by the insurance agent I use for my own business, Doug Lynch, and his broker, Tracy Deerfelt, with the Nationwide Contractors Alliance. In the last year, I got to know Doug and Tracy as they were consulting for me on some questions I had for my own company. And after more than a decade in the business, I can confidently say I didn't even understand half the equation when it comes to general liability insurance. I'm confident, actually, that very few builders do. I had some big gaps in my understanding and even more in my coverage. Now, this is a risk-heavy business, and you can't leave everything you've built, no pun intended, to chance. Make sure you have good protection. Make sure you have reliable protection, and make sure the agents you work with have your back. Doug and Tracy are by far the best I've found in the business, or I wouldn't use them myself. They assessed my particular business, built me a customized plan around it, and now, of course, I sleep better at night as a result. Visit douglaslynch.com and nwcalliance.com to learn more about how insurance and other solutions can really work for builders. Before we get started, a quick shout out to two of our project partners, Ram Windows and Mila Appliances, both of whom we are using in our marquee project 3705 Kennelwood, which is our biggest, baddest boy that we have built to date. And I have been nothing but impressed with both of those companies the quality windows that ram is building and producing that we have now have installed on site is just uh spectacular beyond my expectations and same thing with mila i have been so thrilled to really start using them and incorporating them into our builds everybody i talk to about their appliances absolutely loves them our potential buyers we're talking to are all excited to know that those are the appliances we're putting in. So again, Ram Windows and Mila Appliances, thank you both for your support and partnership. What's up, y'all? Hope you're doing well. Welcome to an episode on passive house building specifically lessons from an actual passive house project that was just built here in Austin, my town, in the last year. Now I'm going to be talking to Trey Farmer. Trey is a licensed architect with Forgecraft Architecture and Design. Trey is also the architect of the aforementioned home. It is actually his home, so it's his personal residence. He really explored a lot of different concepts in passive house building with his own project. He had a little bit more leeway and flexibility. So that was one of the things that made it such an interesting project for me to look into is just seeing what Trey, being an expert in the industry already, uh, would do with his very own home. So I toured it pre-COVID back in January or February of 2020. And, um, we promised to circle up to do, um, an episode once it was completed. So this is that episode and the objective is to really understand from Trey what he did, but looking back, what worked, what didn't, and what would he 
do if he could do it all over again. Enjoy the episode. All right, Trey. So I wanted to visit with you about your passive home project, which is um, a project you built for your own family in uh, in Clarksville, in in Austin. And I have had the opportunity to walk it with you pre-COVID. So we're going on about seven months ago, right as you guys were finishing it. We've had this plan for a while to uh, to introduce this to our audience, mainly because I think it's so cool. Um, so I'm excited about this because what I really want to do is just visit with you on, you know, let's start with kind of you telling us a little bit about the, about the project. Um, but then what I really want to do is go into the details of what specifically you put in to the home that you, that, that, uh, qualifies it as a, as a passive build. And then looking back now that you're finished, kind of what, what you would do differently the next time so that kind of our, our audience may have the benefit of learning from your experience. So that's how I want to structure the interview. Let's kick it off with you just giving us a quick overview of the project itself. Sure. Yeah, it sounds good. And then um, give a little bit of background just on, on Passive House as well. So, so this is a, um, it was a 1914 Craftsman, you know, balloon framed pure and beam uh no insulation original single hung windows uh were about 500 feet from mopac which is a eight lane or six lane highway that has a uh, freight freight line running down the middle of it um in a historic neighborhood really in close to downtown austin um so we lived here for seven years um you know and dealt with all the funkiness of an old house you know in, in this climate with you know humidity and crazy leakiness we did a, a blower door test of it um right when we moved out and it was like 16 air changes per hour you know so more than triple code minimum and then passive house is about 10 times tighter than code minimum um so pretty big changes there you know big uh you know not super old hvac system but just old house to where like you know the air conditioner comes on in the middle of the night and wakes you up because the condenser is right outside the master bedroom and you know in the winter you get that like hot dry air that wakes you up when that turns on and then as soon as it turns off you're uncomfortable in the other direction um so uh you know a lot of room for improvement uh and and so what we did was we ended up um my wife and i designed this together and, and worked with another architect, Hugh Jefferson Randolph, who's a, a friend and, and mentor of ours. And, um, and, and I'll interject one of my favorite architects in Austin. I mean, he does, he does amazing, amazing work. You yeah. guys in your firm also do amazing work. Hugh is, he is right there with you guys leading the pack. For sure. Yeah. And, and um, he, I, I worked for him when I was in grad school and he does, you know, exclusively custom custom homes, and he does a lot of kind of historic remodel additions that with like these kind of contemporary, very like playful uh, additions and, and, and new build. And then like a lot of his new construction even looks like it's kind of, you know, like a, a in addition to a historic home. Um, but anyway, we we really enjoy him and and his team and his design aesthetic and and uh you know he was a great sort of tiebreaker you know considerations where adrian and i had different ideas and he brought a lot of 
we all sort of like magic and, and beauty and like light play to the project and um you know really it was fun working with him um so so yeah so we, we design you know we're in design for a while you know we were living in the house so we can kind of take our time and, and really think about it and play with it and how you know as an architect who went to grad school in town here most of our friend group are designers or contractors and so we, you know we'd have dinner parties and at the end once everyone's had a couple glasses of wine kind of like pull out the drawings and everyone be like walking around looking at stuff and you know kind of see see what everyone thought as things progressed um so uh so yeah so then what we ended up doing was adding about 50 percent to the square footage so it was 1400 and we it's now about 2100 and then we kept the roof line but uh enclosed the attic so you know the old uh insulation was at the, above the ceiling and we moved it out to the to the roof line and so that gave us a, a nice kind of like 200 square foot loft over one of the existing bedrooms and then a, a big um you know very generous like mechanical room that's also long-term storage in that space um, and so those are not counted in those square footages um, and then we added also about a 200 square foot screen porch on the back of the house so the, the lot slopes away towards the back and one of the nice things about three months after we first bought the house our neighbor uh, to the east took down a tree and all of a sudden we had a skyline view which we didn't know when we bought the house. But the way the house was set up was there was no view from anywhere in the house. Like the Eastern face was essentially like a laundry room and master bath, which has had one tiny window in it that you couldn't really see out. So, so now the, the plan really like preferences that our living room opens up with four, you know, floor to ceiling windows and, and then the screen porch looks out and we're kind of like, perched on the hill because we built out as the grade goes away we have this kind of like treehouse screen porch with the, the view of downtown with them really amazing sort of uh oasis as we have been stuck in the house for the last six months um so uh in terms of passive house we um so i'm i'm active in the the passive house community here in austin there's a group of us that put on a conference every other year called the Human Climate Conference, which is um, a two-day kind of high-performance building uh, shindig. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, someday we'll have it again. Um, but you know, we ended up canceling it this past May, and they're still figuring out if we're going to do it in 21 or 22. Um, so uh, essentially, we worked with with Fias. There's the Passive House US, um, and they had they were putting out a 2018 standard, which was climate specific. So the targets vary depending on your climate, which makes a lot of sense because the original Passive House standard was really developed and and fine tuned in Central Europe, where there's essentially one climate zone, and then it got adopted and kind of caught. Uh, you know, caught fire in the U.S. in sort of the Pacific Northwest and New York, Pennsylvania, New England to a certain extent, and Chicago. Um, and so it's really doesn't, the existing targets didn't really make sense for human climate. And so there are a couple passive houses down. There's one in Austin that was built in 2012 and one in New Orleans, and that's really it. Um, just because you, essentially the, 
amount of insulation and, and, uh, uh, you know, the interventions you have to make are, are way up the curve in terms of return on investment, um, from a monetary and embodied carbon standpoint from the energy reduction, uh, goals. So, so the sort of like big picture passive houses, you take your mortgage payment and then you add in, uh, whatever the payment would be to basically go off grid or, or to be net zero. Uh, energy and then take that total cost and basically front load some of the electric or the solar uh, payments in back into the mortgage and make a more robust building that's going to then give you added benefits to your indoor air quality and durability and passive survivability and like long-term uh, power outages that sort of thing resiliency is another way to put that um, and so what that looks like in practical terms is that you basically are designing the building with a 3D energy model through a program called Luffy Passive that takes into account shading and orientation and your assemblies, windows, HVAC, internal games, all that sort of thing. Um, and, it's, and then you're trying to hit a certain uh, target for your peak heating and cooling. So, so like coldest day of the year, hottest day of the year, uh, and then overall energy for cooling and heating, and then there's an air tightness requirement and an overall site energy um, requirement, and then a per person site energy requirement, which is broken out based on the number of bedrooms you have. Um, and so, uh, essentially, what that what that means in terms of the construction is that you're going above code, right? So we have a mixture of triple pane and double pane windows. Um, we are much more airtight uh, than code. So in Austin, it's the sort of lowest threshold of airtightness in our climate and it gets tighter even just a few miles north of here the climate zone changes and it goes from five ACH 50, which is essentially the amount of the full volume of air in the house that would get blown through when you put a certain amount of pressure differential on it through a, what's called a blower door test where you basically put a fan in your door and, and then pressurize the house. Um, so passive house is, uh, the old standard was 0.6 air changes per hour. The new metric uses a different uh, way of calculating that where it's cubic feet of air per minute per square foot of envelope, but it, it works out to pretty close, at least for our size house. So 0.6 is, you know, not quite, but about 10 times the code level of air tightness. Um, and so that is probably the biggest lift in, in our climate, just from like a construction culture and, you know, knowledge base. Um, you know, it's easy enough to go from two by four walls to two by six walls and then do some continuous insulation. Um, you know, there's good HVAC contractors here who know how to install ARVs and dedicated dehumidifiers. And some of that stuff is done sort of general practice in some of the custom home uh, con contractors and architects here. But the air tightness is something where that was gonna be the biggest lift. Um, and so the, the benefit of that is you get, a, you get a big energy reduction 
once you get down from like five error changes per hour to like two or one. Um, and Trey, can you share with system, us? Can yeah. you share with us who who you did that with just for our local listeners? Because I, I always forget their name, but I, I know they're they're like the guys to go to in town. For the air tightness? Yeah. Yeah, so we, we ended up using um, AeroBarrier, which is a, a IAQ Texas is the company that does the install in, yeah. in our market. Um, and that is sort of a, you know, like typically with, with the air tightness, you, you know, it's, it's, it's like about careful detailing, you know, like minimizing uh, weird turns and, and things like that in the envelope. Um, and and penetrations and then uh you know careful construction you know around the windows any of your roof to wall transitions wall to floor that kind of thing um particularly because we were uh working with old framing from an old house and then new framing we ended up replacing most of the framing but we still had sort of the front porch was old there there were a few places where the the connections were really tricky and so we were able to get down to about one air changes per hour just through the sheer will of our contractors and and friends coming over and a lot of pookie um but we couldn't get quite get to the the passive house standard and so aero barrier is basically a, a technology where they blow a acetate polymer sort of microfiber into the air and then pressurize the house and essentially those those that fibrous sort of mastic self-seals any any penetration in the envelope um, as it blows through and so you get incredible levels of air tightness um, you know in a, in a couple hours um, and you can watch it go down rather than trying to pressurize your house and go around and feel for leaks with your hand or look with an infrared camera and then like crawl around with a, um, a cock gun and some uh, you know like zip liquid she uh liquid sealant or something like that um you know we did a bunch of that but it just got to the point where it was too frustrating for for our contractors and for us and it was just taking up too much time um and we knew you know the air barrier guys are friends so this is kind of the 80 20 rule where yeah it's kind of like an ace and up your sleeve what i what i remember from our original meeting is is that you come in and you do this and this is probably going to be one of the kind of the top things that somebody can really do um for not a yeah. not a ton of money right i mean you're talking about yeah um i, I mean think a I, couple of dollars a square foot yeah you know so it's not nothing but yeah. but when you compare it to the amount of labor and material um particularly like if you're building something that is not all new construction and if you know, if the team has not gone for this level of air tightness before, um, having air barrier in the budget is is a, a great way to ensure that you're going to hit your target. Um, yeah. And I, I think in, in hindsight, we definitely would have used them early, much earlier in the process. You know, it's a good learning experience to to just run the blower door for a couple of days and really find where the leaks are. Um, you know, like from a detailing standpoint as an architect and, and also from a construction standpoint from the contractor, like where are the places that, you know, all the way around the house, there's like one seam that, that didn't get sealed or like 
where are the places that are really difficult for the the framer or whoever's doing the the, the taping and the ceiling to find or see um yeah, so i think it's a it's a worthwhile experience to do it manually um but just from like a economics and, and time standpoint uh calling we, we definitely would call an arrow barrier much sooner yeah um, okay good so that, that's a good yeah. part of the case study portion of this to look back and realize that that was probably a really good use of your money and you probably could have saved some on some of your mm -hmm. other ceiling expenses if yeah like you said if you had jumped jumped in with them a little earlier yeah and from and just from like a sustainability standpoint like you know we went through like a case of um like polywall you know liquid flash yeah. uh and or the blue barrier and and uh you know the amount of um material that was used in the arrow barrier process was like a tenth of that and much more effective because it's only hitting exactly where it needs to whereas when you're going in with a cock gun it's like well there's a whole seam here between two two by fours and it seems like there's some sort of leakage happening and so you have to seal the whole thing rather than arrow barrier kind of navigating to the actual hole um and so, so just uh, in terms of the airtightness the benefit of it you know once you the you know you're, you're significantly reducing your energy load um for that for you know for at least in this climate from like the five ach down to like one or two um and then below that you know is maybe a little bit ego i think there's there's like some uh I don't know, disagreement in the building science community about like how helpful it is to get like that to go from like one and a half to 0.6. Um, but the, the big, the real, the big benefit then is from an indoor air quality perspective where when you get that tight, you can really easily positively pressurize your house, which means that, so once you get that tight, you need to have dedicated ventilation, right? And, you know, even with a code house in this climate, having dedicated ventilation and a dehumidifier um, in my opinion, are, are sort of must-haves because um, once you start building efficient homes, you're not your HVAC system isn't able to reduce to remove that humidity or, or latent load, um, and so you end up with really high humidity in the house, particularly in the shoulder seasons where the HVAC isn't running um, or where air conditioner isn't running very much because you know it's it's at or you're having to run it to like 65. To yeah. get comfortable um and so having that dedicated dehu takes care of that and there's a lot of you know mold and indoor, other indoor quality issues along with that like once you get up uh into higher humidity levels your voc off offput from furniture and your finishings goes up and that gets crazy and then you're having you know higher risk of mold growth and allergies and that sort of thing do you know at, at what percentage that really starts to flip or become a little more dangerous? I mean, I, I, I've heard like 55% is tends to be a switch, but I've also heard other opinions as well. So I'm curious. The, the, um, the chart that everybody shows is back is from like the sixties. It's like the zebra chart kind of, you know, it's basically showing that there are certain, things that are spiking at lower humidities and then certain things that are spiking at higher humidities 
Um, and so the kind of sweet spot, at least according to this, that chart is uh, 45 to 55. And, you know, but that's, it's kind of old data and it's a single chart that gets used a lot. Um, but that seems to be the general um, sort of consensus is that like that 45 to 55 range is definitely the sweet spot of where, um, you know, if you get much below that, then, you know, you're having like drying of your mucous membranes and, and other issues around that. Um, and, you know, even like you're, you're going to start getting into like wood uh, floors, you know, gapping and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and then when you get higher, you're having more VOCs um, and molds and dust mites. Also, when you get really low, um, there has been some recent uh, studies coming out because of COVID when you have really low humidity, uh, viruses live on surfaces much longer. Um, so so that, especially in like colder climates in the winter coming up, that's a big part of the concern around, um, you know, outbreaks, both because people are moving indoors because, uh, you know, you can't be outside as much in, you know, Boston in January, but also because the uh, humidity gets really low because the ambient air outside has very little humidity in it. And then you bring it in and heat it up and your relative humidity gets, you know, crazy low. And so adding humidity back in, in those cases seems to be a way of um, helping to combat um, viral contamination in indoor environments. Um, yeah, I mean, very, getting, very appropriate right now. Yeah, so there's been pretty interesting research coming out around a lot of that. I mean, it's definitely not in my wheelhouse, but something I keep an eye on. Um, but, uh, but yeah, in, in our climate, it's the other, the other side, you know, it's the too much humidity while we were renting, we were living in a, uh, two year old, uh, um, you know, uh, builder, builder grade house, um, that was a townhouse and we were the middle unit of three. Uh, and it's over in a, a newer development in town that has called Mueller that has these above grade or sorry, above code requirements. So it was, you know, pretty well built, um, well built townhome, but because it was the middle unit of three and is, you know, built slightly above code, the, uh, AC didn't run very much. And we were regularly getting up into like 75, 80% relative humidity in the home um, until we plugged in a, a standalone dehumidifier. Um, and a few of our neighbors over there who became friends with ended up installing uh, actual dehumidifiers in the units because they were finding the same thing. And, and when you get up to that level, I mean, that's when you start having like actual mold growth. We had a salt lamp. It was, you know, one of those like crystal lamps that you can use as like a nightlight or whatever yep. that we hadn't plugged in since we moved. And it started melting and like, I went to plug it in. I was like, why oh is gosh. it all wet? And like <laughs> all the books that were underneath it on the shelf, uh, were all covered in saline solution. And it was like, this is nuts. And then we had, you know, had some other very visible fuzzy stuff growing. Um, so it, you know, just all that's to say is like in this climate, humidity is a big deal. And then especially in some of these newer builds that aren't doing dedicated dehumidification, but are, you know, pretty, low load homes you know they're well built they're energy efficient they're having issues with 
towards humidity. Um, and I think that's just going to be a thing that's going to become more and more of a problem where we don't have any sort of required dehumidification in our code here, but it's definitely something that, you know, to anyone building spec homes, you know, where you're going to be liable for these sort of things, it's not a huge cost if you do it while you're building the HVAC system. Um, but yeah. it's great well, for indoor air quality. I think you can use it as a marketing uh, tool, you know, make sure that people yeah. walking through your house know that your house has that because I'm sure none of the other ones will. Um, well, we're going through this with a few homes that we've got under spec homes that we've got under construction right now, the same kind of decision matrix. And we we've mm -hmm. arrived at a point now where spray foam open cell is, mm -hmm. is actually like less. We're, we're getting quotes that for, for it being less that even like a combination of open cell in that, in the attic and then, and then, you know, a bib system in the walls. Mm -hmm. So um, it actually is now cheaper to, to do, you know, a tighter house in a lot of situations. So you even, it's more necessary to have some sort of mechanism to get that humidity out of the house. Um, what we, what we're doing is, you know, two stage, two stage systems, which will help a little bit combined with dehumidification. One question I've been asking people, and of course, like so many things, you know, depends on who you ask, you get different answers, but, um, I'm just curious whether you have to, what, obviously it's best to have a, a dehum system on every unit, right? So if you've got a three story house, it's, you know, with three different, a unit on each story, it's best to have three, but, um, what happens, what happens if you're a spec builder where you're, you just don't have that much money in your, your budget, but you're trying to figure out how to make it work is just one or two units. A, a valuable compromise or is it just or is that just not worth it do you have any opinion on that i would think that you could just do one even i mean we're doing the main thing with that is the distribution so if you have one and you're able to locate it in a way either within the ducted uh you know a, a duct if you have a ducted system on one floor um or to where you don't have it ducted, but you can have it dump the dehumidified air right by a return. Um, so that that, because you know, the dehumidified air is going to come out a little bit hot. So you don't want to have, uh, you know, a hot spot in the house. Um, yep. you know, which I, we've got friends who ran into that with one of those in wall units where, um, you know, it was, it was kind of like a hot little area. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, I would say, I mean, I would think if you can't afford to put in one on each, and even if you can, you know, I mean, <laughs> talk to Positive Energy, but uh, they're, the, they're the local um, authority, HV yeah. authority, HVAC designers. But um, I, I would think that it would be best just to do one um, if you you know if you can't afford to do multiple. And, and even if you can, it may be something you know maybe the money is spent elsewhere but that's a little out yeah. of my i, I yeah. don't i can't confidently say that but i i think it, just doing one and, and locating it in a way where it is getting distributed the air is getting mixed in with the rest of the house as efficiently as you can make it work like either if that's up at the by putting it on the top floor so you know because that's typically where you're going to have it ducted if you're using mini splits on the lower floors yeah um and also where you're going to have higher heat load, um, you know, putting it 
near a, where the stair, you know, the vertical circulation is so that you're getting more mixing between floors. Yeah. Um, I think that, that, that to me right there is the, is the concern that if you're, if you just have it on select units, I think you've got to somehow ensure that you've got really optimal mixing between, between different units and different zones in the house or otherwise the other zones just simply aren't getting the, the benefit. And I just, I just don't know enough about the way air transfer flows through a house in, in conjunction with how often and how much it comes at, you know, outside intake is a factor mm -hmm. to know yeah. if, if, if start, if some of the effects start getting negated and you're right, that would be a really interesting question for positive energy. I'm going to put that out there to them. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, there is a certain amount of like equilibrium that the house is going to want to be at. And so I think if you have, as long as you have the DU and you can always monitor it too, you know, if you have it in one area and then you monitor the other areas and they're getting it, then maybe you want to set it a little bit lower. Right. So it's a little bit, you know, it's more on the 45 edge of that range where it's located. And then maybe the other areas get are getting it more on 55. But I, I would think that, um, I mean, I think if you're putting any sort of dedicated DU in a, um, in a spec, then you're in good shape and much better shape than 90% of the homes getting built. Right. Um, yeah. Let's talk. I know we're running short on time because I know you got a, you got a lunch meeting you need to run to, but let, let's talk about, um, your rock wool because I thought that was a really interesting, uh, application. In fact, I, after I talked to you, I, uh, interviewed Dan Edelman with Rockwell. So we've got an episode mm -hmm. with him. Uh, very intrigued by that, that product. I still can't figure out as a spec builder, I want to, but I can't figure out how to make the numbers work. It's still, yeah. there's still that, that inconsistency and in information I'm getting where it sounds like, you know, Rockwell and, and Dan, and maybe it's in their neck of the woods, I think are thinking it's, it's, more affordable than the actual quotes I've been getting so far. And I think it probably comes down to the fact that we just don't have that many installers that are doing it here. So we're, as you and I've talked about probably getting pretty big premiums and markups on our, on our stuff down here. So it might just be as yeah. simple as more. It needs to be a little bit more ubiquitous to get that momentum in our favor. It's funny. Cause it's like, it's, um, you know, we do it in commercial projects. Um, and the, like the continue, you know, the, um, the board product for the continuous insulation is, uh, a lot easier to get into projects for us than, than the, the, the bat in residential projects, um, from like a cost comparison standpoint to other options. Um, we, we went around and around on insulation. It was, you know, there were a couple of rabbit holes we went down. Um, one was like whether or not to exhaust our bathrooms directly or just, run, you know, use the ERV exhaust, which is the latter being the more sort of typical passive house uh, strategy and the former being what our local green building people wanted us to do. Um, and then what we did for insulation was another one. Um, so we, you know, initially wanted to use cellulose and cellulose in the walls um you know for carbon positive arguably um you know pretty inert non-toxic all that good stuff um the issue with that was that our installer was worried about because we were doing it in cathedral you know at the roof line 
Um, he was worried about it uh, sagging in the bibs um, at, up at the, uh, the ridge uh, of the roof. And so we kind of went back and forth between like spray foam and whether or not to just do cellulose and kind of like overpack it or use like Intello wrap instead of their typical bibs wrap. That's, you know, something that is an air seal, but also is just like a much more robust kind of fabric that you tack on um, and stuff behind. So you can stuff to a much greater, um, you know, pounds per square foot of the, of the uh, cellulose. Um, and where we landed was uh, using the, the Rockwell bat product, which is, you know, it's not like a fat, like a fiberglass, right? It's, it's basically like a form fit, sort of less dense board um, that just went up in between the roof rafters. Um, and I don't know, I mean, it was definitely a cost premium. I mean, it was a decision we made for, it's kind of, you know, it's a tricky thing, right? Like in the industry, there's a lot of pushback from the spray foam installers. Like there's like a lot of the HVAC people are really kind of scared of of spray foam because if it gets installed improperly, then you can have some crazy off gassing that happens. Um, and that is a thing that's typically seen in like it corrodes fan coils in VRF systems um, when it's, this is like when it's done improperly and the pushback from the installers is like, we actually need, we want more regulation in our industry and it's not a product issue. It's more like a lack of training issue in some installers. Um, what, uh, what is the reason why it, it, sometimes gets installed improperly is it is it improper mixing in the truck or I'm what not, is I don't, it I, I, I guess yeah I guess it's an improper mixing in the truck or when it's getting blown in like if it's the the spray nozzle isn't dialed in or the mix isn't dialed in or it's not at the right temperature I, I don't know enough about it um I just know like like Mitsubishi put out a white paper about it and I think it's it's actually I mean and what's happening is essentially it's like putting off chlorine, um, which is corroding the copper in the fan coil. So like you know whether or not that's actually a human health issue is another question, right? Like it's it, you know we swim in pools and things. Um, anyway, it's there's also like you know spray foam, particularly closed cell, is arguably never going to make up the benefit of installing it from like an embodied carbon to reduction in carbon from the energy efficiency standpoint. Um, so, you know, it's like, there's a lot of rabbit holes and there's a lot of like disagreement and there's a lot of sort of gray area on these things. Um, what came down to us was, you know, we wanted something that didn't have any, also when you do spray foam in an attic in a mechanical space, you need to put flame retardants either in the mix or, or as a, a, a coat over it. Um, <laughs> a big caveat that like, I am not an insulation expert. So I apologize to all the people out there who are like yelling right now <laughs> that I'm misspeaking. Uh, but anyway, we decided to go with Rockwell. Um, just, you know, it's, it's inert. It doesn't have any additives. It's we're also um, within our setbacks on both sides, um, which is part of why we're keeping the old framing. Um, and so there's some, 
you know, we had to have fire rated walls. Um, and so the rock wall isn't necessary for that, but it's, you know, an added bonus is that it is, uh, non-combustible. Um, you know, it does have higher embodied carbon than cellulose or something. Um, but, uh, but anyway, you know, it's like, it's one of those things. I'm not sure I would go with it again. I'm not, but that's not to say I wouldn't. It's, It's just like, it was a big learning experience and, and it's like, you know, you're going through these things as your contractors, like we need to install this. We're losing time. We're losing time. And you're like trying to call the installation and contractor and get, got like five different bids from our you know, very patient, uh, James Hinkle, uh, yeah. you know, who did a great job. And, and I really appreciated him kind of holding my hand as I was the anxious homeowner architect <laughs> trying to make these decisions. Um, but yeah, you know, there's certain things where it's kind of like you can only go so far down the rabbit hole and you just have to install something so that you can keep building. Right. Um, but we, we're really happy with it. It was great installing it. Um, it's performed really well. Um, well they, there was some concern. Sorry, go ahead. They've got a really compelling message and a, and a compelling story and a compelling value proposition. I mean, I, I really mm-hmm. enjoyed my visit with with Dan Edelman from Rockwell. So I do yeah. think everybody should, everybody should evaluate them and their products to see if they, if, if it makes sense for them. I think it's for, for me right now, it's I'm trying and I just, I still haven't been able to get there just yet, but I hope, I hope I can because I like the product. Yeah. Yeah. And like everything else, right. It's like a, you've got trade-offs in the house, you know, there's a million things going into building a house and, and a limited budget and you know like you got it's all trade-offs right so if you can get if you can get a dehu in there you know but but need to use a different insulation i think that's probably a a valuable trade-off to make um but uh but yeah it was lots of learning for sure for us on this um before we go is there anything anything else that you i mean i think we hit on all of the things i was kind of expecting us to hit on in terms of the Mm -hmm. the top mechanisms to to push it into a passive zone is there anything else though that that we're missing or that you want to point out that you think builders ought to be considering um i think uh the I think there's two two pieces. One is just around sort of like the marketing and the, and the messaging of of this is like I think I think there's a huge opportunity from like a human health standpoint. And I think this was even before COVID, but it is is even more pertinent now. And also, you know, I've seen a couple articles in California with all the fires where like a lot of the um, spec home builders have started. Uh, putting in really robust uh, filtration systems and, and, and using that as a marketing tool. Um, so the benefits of passive housing, you get a huge energy reduction and it makes it really easy to go net zero if that's something you want to do, um, you know, with, with PV. In Austin, our energy mix is really clean comparatively. Um, you know, there's a lot of renewables already. So just reducing the, you know, reducing your overall energy use is really nice from a, you know, monthly utility bill standpoint, but also like a, you know, do greater climate change standpoint. Um, but even more than that, comfort, right, is is huge. You know, being able to sit by a window when it's 110 out or when it's 20 out, <laughs> the like 
one day a year that it gets to be 20 here um, and not feel cold or hot through the window like you do uh, normally. Um, not really hearing your AC, you know, it's just kind of invisible, essentially. Like, it's it's just comfortable in the house. You're not having big temperature differentials between rooms. The Having the dedicated ventilation means that we're getting fresh air that's been filtered and pre-tempered, dropped into our bedroom all night long. So our carbon dioxide levels stay, you know, maybe like 600 is the highest it's been in our bedroom, you know, which is still incredibly low. It's like, you know, between 350 and 400 outside and in our office when we have a meeting with 10 people it goes up to like you know 3,000 right and and it has cognitive it, it uh gives cognitive impairment to people it makes you sleepy but it means that you're not sleeping well and not getting restful sleep it means you can't think clearly um so having that that constant fresh air is has been great it's just like comfortable and it feels good and not stuffy um and then uh you know because we're so airtight in the building um it means that you can positively pressurize your house with the ARV by just making the supply slightly higher than the exhaust and that means that you're not getting any infiltration in through the nooks and crannies and there aren't really any but like in you know most older houses and even most newer houses what's happening is that if you're not putting in dedicated ventilation and you're not positively pressurizing, your fresh air is coming in through the cracks and crevices and attic. And so it's coming in through your bat insulation. It's coming in through your foundation. It's coming in through all those little places where all the cockroach crap is. And um, it's not, that's not where you want your fresh air to come from. Right. Um, so, so there's a, a lot of health benefits and comfort benefits. And I think that's really the message that resonates with people. You know, I think everybody wants to use less energy and do right by the environment, but unless you can, you know, make that savings ROI like really clear and really upfront, it's it's not going to resonate with most people from a purchasing a home standpoint. And even then, it's you know might be a smaller factor than I think people like to say it is. But if you can talk to somebody about their kids not having asthma or allergies or them sleeping better at night and, and having more brain power and less brain fog in the afternoon when they're working from home. Um, you know, if you can talk to them about just like being comfortable in their house all year round, uh, I think that is the kind of thing that will really resonate with people and, and help, uh, you know, create value in a home that maybe, um, warrants a little bit higher of a price tag um, and there was that that study that came out a couple of years ago from the austin round rock metro area that homes that have green certification sell it i think it was like 10 or 15 percent higher um, and so that was looking broadly it wasn't saying passive house or lead or whatever but there is a value associated with um, homes that can prove that they're healthier and and greener or whatever that means yeah i think you hit the nail on the head saying that people like the idea of their house being more energy efficient and, and there are there's a population of people who will pay more for that but the broad market from my experience 
wants it, but, but is pretty price sensitive to paying more for it. What mm-hmm. to be able to start implementing some of these high performance systems that we're talking about today, the marketing angle is exactly what you said. I think it is more about the health and the well being of the of the purchaser and their family. That's that's the way to sell mm-hmm. these products and systems to them. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, 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 for sure. The, the, you know, like a Mitsubishi VRF is going to be more efficient than a one or two stage, but the real value is in in the comfort and the quietness and the health. Um, and I think that that's, that's the message that resonates, like you said. Yeah. Great, Trey. This was um, a fun discussion for me because I, listen, I loved having uh, the tour of your house and seeing, seeing it firsthand. I'm going to make sure that we somehow get a link to some photos or, or something. You and I can talk about that offline, how we can, how we can show the listeners exactly what they've been listening to today they can see the the product firsthand but great, um, great yeah thank you so much this was a lot of fun yeah thank you trey well we'll talk soon all right take care